All right, let's uh, resume our program. This is now the second panel for today, uh, celebrating Constitution Day. For those of you who've just joined us, it's the 222nd anniversary of uh, the Constitutions having been sent out for ratification. I expect some numerologist or Dan Brown perhaps can uh, (laughs) tell us uh, the significance of the triple twos. Uh, But in any event, um, this panel Uh, is dealing with uh, the many kinds of speech, obscenity, public parks, and elections. And we have a very distinguished panel to take on those issues. Uh, We're going to start with Nadine Strawson, uh, then turn to Jim Bopp, and finally to Brad Smith. And I'm going to introduce each speaker before he or she speaks. Starting with Nadine Strawson, who is a dear friend of mine and of the Cato Institute, has spoken often here Uh, and in other venues uh, for Cato. She is professor of law at uh, New York Law School. Um, She is a graduate of um, Harvard College and Harvard uh, Law School, where she served as editor of the Harvard Law Review. Um, She has written, lectured, and practiced extensively in areas of constitutional law. It would take me the whole 15 minutes that is allotted to her simply to go over her bio of distinguished accomplishments and awards. Uh, From 91 to 2008, she served as president of the American Civil Liberties Union. She's the first woman to head the nation's largest and oldest civil liberties organization. Uh, She has been um, on the stage. Her professional theater debut, her bio says, was as a guest star in Eve Ensler's award-winning play, The Vagina Monologues, during a week-long run here at the National Theater in Washington, D.C. She writes and speaks prolifically. I don't know how she um, finds time to sleep, given her speaking schedule, but she apparently does from her obvious appearance here today. Uh, would you please welcome Nadine Strassen. Thank you, Roger. Uh, the two cases that I have been asked to discuss raised First Amendment issues that are interesting, important, and challenging. In both cases, though, the court declined to resolve any of those issues. Instead, putting them off for another day. So uh, to quote the title of this conference, referring to past and prologue, I'm going to briefly lay out the narrow issues that the court did decide in these two cases in its past term, and then I'm going to focus on both of them as the prologue for future First Amendment rulings. Uh, I was asked to spend most of my time on a case called Pleasant Grove City versus Sumum. In that case, the narrow and non-controversial nature of the court's holding is indicated by the fact that it was reached unanimously. Specifically, what the court held was that when the government places a permanent monument in a public park, that monument constitutes government speech, even if the government has accepted the monument as a donation from a private group. Now, the court has consistently held that government speech is not subject to the First Amendment's free speech clause. Rather, government, it says, is free to choose what expression to convey or to endorse, subject only to political constraints, in other words, accountability to the voters. Therefore, in the context at issue in Sumum, permanent monuments in public parks, 
the court held that a government is free to choose which monuments to display and which monuments not to display as far as the free speech clause is concerned. When the government speaks, it is subject to other constitutional constraints of most pertinence, in this case, the Establishment Clause, and I'll say more about that later. Now, the Sumum case involved a park in Pleasant Grove, Utah, which contained 15 monuments, most of which had been donated by private individuals or institutions, and one of which displayed the Ten Commandments. This was one of the many Ten Commandments monuments that the Fraternal Order of the Eagles had donated to state and local governments all over the country. Sumum is a religious organization that was founded in 1975, whose central beliefs are the seven principles of creation, also known as the seven aphorisms. In this case, Summum had asked Pleasant Grove to accept and display a seven aphorisms monument, and when the city declined, Summum challenged that denial primarily under the First Amendment free speech clause. And I want to note that Summum was represented uh, by someone who has many claims to fame, but I'm going to mention only one now, that he delivered the annual Kenneth B. Simon lecture at this conference in 2003, uh, namely Walter Dellinger. And Roger, I'm surprised that you did mention the vagina monologues, but not that I was uh, gave a Simon lecture in 2005. So we see your order of priorities there. <laughs> for a free speech, for a free speech panel, he just wanted to say that word. I think. <laughs> I, I was saving that till the introduction of the um, Simon lecture later on, but uh, but I take your point. Thank you. <laughs> And I'm blushing. Anyway, Summum, through its esteemed counsel, Walter Dellinger, veteran of this conference, um, argued that the city park, with its many privately donated monuments, constituted a public forum for the display uh, for private groups to display monuments, and that the city therefore could not engage in viewpoint discrimination by accepting some privately donated monuments but not others. In particular, Summum complained that, that the city had discriminated in favor of the viewpoint contained in the Ten Commandments monument and against the viewpoint contained in the Seven Aphorisms monument. Now, of course, when the particular viewpoints at issue are religious, as was true in this case, that raises serious concerns under the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. Summum did initially raise a claim under Utah's Establishment Clause, which it waived on appeal. But Summum did not raise a claim under the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. I've read a couple of theories as to why it did not do so, including the fact that the Tenth Circuit had repeatedly rejected that very Establishment Clause claim in two prior challenges that Summum had brought against Ten Commandment monument displays in other city parks. Uh, in both of those cases, the Tenth Circuit held that a government display of Ten Commandments, of a Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments monument, that's a mouthful, that it had received from a private uh, sector donor, the Tenth Circuit said, that should be seen as the donor's expression and not government expression. So on that theory, those Tenth Amendment, uh, Tenth Circuit rulings rejected Summum's Establishment Clause challenges, but they simultaneously supported Summum's Free Speech Clause challenge that led to the litigation that went to the United States Supreme Court. 
Uh, indeed, in that case that ended up at the Supreme Court, the Tenth Circuit continued to rule consistently with its prior cases on point. It held that the monument Summum sought to donate uh, would constitute private speech, the same conclusion it had reached regarding the Ten Commandments monuments. So, in short, the Tenth Circuit ruled that a government's acceptance of some privately donated monuments creates a public forum in which the government cannot reject other such monuments based on viewpoint. Uh, I should note that the Tenth Circuit, when the Tenth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals denied the city's motion for rehearing, a forceful dissent was written by this year's Simon lecturer, uh, then Judge Michael McConnell. So Cato has had a continuing involvement in this case, Roger. Um, as I already indicated, Judge McConnell's dissent was vindicated by all nine Supreme Court justices. That said, several of the justices explicitly acknowledged the complicated interrelationship between free speech principles and establishment principles, which had apparently boxed the Tenth Circuit majority into a corner. On the one hand, in the two earlier Summum cases, the Tenth Circuit had treated the challenged Ten Commandments displays as private speech in a public forum, and it thereby deflected Summum's Establishment Clause claims. On the other hand, though, the Tenth Circuit's approach would have enabled Summum to achieve the very same result under the aegis of the Free Speech Clause. Now, to be sure, in the free speech litigation, Summum wasn't expressly seeking removal of the Ten Commandments monument, as it had done in its Establishment Clause litigation. But if the Supreme Court had not overturned the Tenth Circuit's holding, the practical effect likely would have been exactly the same, because it would have forced the city to choose either between accepting no donated monuments at all or else accepting all such monuments. And it's very hard to uh, imagine that any city would not choose the former option, hence being forced to get rid of the Ten uh, Commandments monument as well. The Supreme Court was, of course, keenly aware of the unresolved Establishment Clause implications of its summum holding. After all, uh, in other cases, the High Court had previously taken the very same general tack that the Tenth Circuit had, using a private speech, public forum analysis to reject Establishment Clause challenges to religious expression on, pri on public property. The city, therefore, faced the dilemma, to quote Justice Scalia, of jumping from the free speech clause frying pan into the establishment clause fire. Anticipating this next round of the ongoing interplay between these two First Amendment guarantees, several justices issued dicta on point in their summum opinions. Justice Scalia offered the city an alternative escape route from future Establishment Clause challenges to substitute for the private speech public forum rationale that the Tenth Circuit had devised, but that the Supreme Court nixed. Uh, specifically, Justice Scalia cited the court's 2005 decision in Van Orden versus Perry, in which five justices rejected an Establishment Clause challenge to a government display in another public park uh, that also included multiple monuments, including another one of these apparently ubiquitous Ten Commandments that had been donated by the Fraternal Order of the Eagles. The five justices who joined in the Van Orden uh, ruling 
all agreed that given the overall context of that particular display, including its historic context, the Ten Commandments monument should not be seen as government endorsement of the religious aspect of the Ten Commandments, but rather only as government endorsement of the secular and historic aspects of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the four dissenters in Van Orden pointed to many flaws in its reasoning, but for present purposes, assuming only for the sake of argument that one accepted the Van Orden ruling, there's still a critical distinction between its factual situation and the one involved in Sumim. In Van Orden, in contrast to Sumim, the government had not rejected another religious monument while accepting the Ten Commandments. And even justices and other experts who take the narrowest view of the Establishment Clause acknowledge that it certainly bars government discrimination in favor of or against particular religions and beliefs. The debates about the scope of the Establishment Clause center around whether it goes beyond this core requirement of non-preferentialism. In the Summum case, the discrimination claim is especially potent because adherents of Summum view their seven aphorisms as the original God-given commandments preceding the Ten Commandments. So these two sets of rules both emanate from different accounts and beliefs about the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. So for the government to accept a monument that enshrines one of these beliefs but not the other would directly violate the non-preferentialism that the Establishment Clause certainly demands. And that point was stressed in the very excellent essay about the Sumum case in the new issue of Cato Supreme Court Review uh, by Patrick M. Gary of the University of South Dakota School of Law. And I urge all of you who haven't yet done so to read it. Interestingly enough, he speaks from a very narrow perspective on the Establishment Clause, which I do not share. Uh, and yet, interestingly, he says, in order to preserve uh, the view that the Establishment Clause only prohibits non-preferentialism, it's especially important for those of us who have that view, to be sure that the government does not, in fact, engage in preferentialism. If it does, as in this situation, um, then that's going to give rise to a wider view of the non-establishment clause. Now, on the one hand, the Summum litigation to date highlights the tension between certain free speech clause and establishment clause doctrines, as I've already noted. On the other hand, when you consider the litigation uh, where it is likely to lead moving forward, it highlights a core common concern that underlies both of those provisions in the First Amendment, and that is the fundamental requirement that government must remain neutral and must not discriminate among the beliefs that are held and expressed by any individuals, not only in the realm of religion, but in any other realm. As the Tenth Circuit correctly held in Summum, the Free Speech Clause clearly bars government from discriminating against particular views in a public forum for private speech. To be sure, the Supreme Court also correctly held, along with Judge McConnell, that Pleasant Grove had not created a public forum for private speech in the form of donated permanent monuments. Uh, but by recognizing that these monuments constitute government speech, 
the Supreme Court has recognized that the city's acceptance or rejection of them is subject to the Establishment Clause. And I think there's an excellent chance that the court will eventually hold that that Establishment Clause prohibits Pleasant Grove from discriminating against the seven aphorisms and in favor of the Ten Commandments. So Summum lost the free speech battle, but it may well win the Establishment Clause war. Now, I think I have a couple minutes left, and I was told if I did, uh, I could speak briefly about the second First Amendment case from last term uh, that is also less interesting in terms of its past ruling and more so as a prologue to future rulings, and that is FCC versus Fox. This was the much-publicized challenge to the Federal Communication Commission's recent unprecedented crackdown on broadcast indecency in the wake of the infamous wardrobe malfunction at the 2004 Super Bowl game, uh, what one commentator called a tempest in a B-cup. Uh, and, you know, it's one of three challenges that are to the FCC's recently ramped up indecency regime that are now pending in the federal courts. In Fox, the Supreme Court postponed addressing any of the fundamental First Amendment questions at stake about the increasingly anomalous nature of the second-class status of broadcast expression. Instead, the court very narrowly ruled on an issue of administrative law, holding that uh, the FCC had not violated administrative law uh, principles when it began to sanction even so-called fleeting or isolated uh, expletives, including just a single four-letter word spontaneously uttered during a live performance. Uh, the Supreme Court therefore reversed the Second Circuit's holding that the FCC had violated administrative law principles and remanded for further proceedings. And I should note that the court also remanded a parallel Third Circuit case in which the broadcast challenger CBS is represented by uh, Bob Corn Revere, a Cato Institute adjunct scholar. So I always like is Bob here now? Bob, fabulous. Uh, so I'm embarrassed to be talking about the case in front of such a great expert. But see, I'm always pointing out the Cato Institute are, connections to all of these cases. <laughs> That's why you keep uh, coming back. <laughs> <laughs> now, what free, free speech principle is involved there? <laughs> it's the market principle. Uh, in Fox, as in Summum, several opinions noted the unresolved First Amendment issues that would have to await future rulings, perhaps in this very case, uh, to quote Justice Scalia's majority opinion. Uh, I just very briefly will note that the FCC's – I find that many of my students are shocked to learn about this indecency regime because to them there's no distinct functional distinction between broadcast and cable and satellite, and they think they're watching things on TV and they see all kinds of uh, nude, nudity and sexually uh, suggestive imagery on the TV screen. So how can this regime be existing? And yet there are uh, heartbreaking instances of not only fines and penalties, but also uh, an enormous and perhaps ultimately unmeasurable chilling effect. If I can just give... Uh, one example, which I found particularly poignant, it was from two years ago, uh, which was going to mark the 50th anniversary, ironically, of a great First Amendment victory in which the ACLU, I'm proud to say, successfully defended uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the poet and, and, and bookstore owner and uh, publisher in San Francisco, who is being criminally prosecuted in San Francisco for publishing Allen Ginsberg's poem, Howl, which I now understand is the most uh, widely sold uh, and distributed poem 
in the world. Uh, be that as it may, on the 50th anniversary, WBAI, which is the Pacifica affiliate station in New York City, uh, was going to air a recording of Allen Ginsberg reading the poem Howl, but in light of this new indecency regime, made an economically rational decision that they simply couldn't afford the risk. Uh, if you added up all of the uh, forbidden words in that poem, it would have completely wiped out the budget of WBAI many times over. So uh, there is really an enormous adverse effect uh, on free speech. And even though uh, you know justice delayed is justice de denied, I'm confident that ultimately when this issue does come back to the Supreme Court, uh, that there's an extremely good chance that the court will strike down uh, at least the fleeting expletive and fleeting image uh, uh, rules that, they, that the FCC has recently been imposing, but perhaps the court uh, might go further. Uh, there were five justices in all who, in dicta in their opinions in this case, did indicate uh, great concern about the First Amendment issues. And I was very heartened by uh, the number of briefs that were filed by uh, friends of the court, including Cato and the ACLU, that were asking the court to use this occasion to uh, completely undo the censorial regime that the FCC has had in place now. With all due respect to Cato and the ACLU, my very favorite amicus brief in this case was filed by a group of former FCC officials, a bipartisan group that included a number of former chairmen of the FCC, lawyers for the FCC, other FCC commissioners, and I thought it was uh, really extraordinary because a couple of them had actually participated in setting in place the indecency rules that the Supreme Court upheld in a very narrow decision in uh, 1978 the famous uh, FCC versus Pacifica uh, involving the famous uh, Seven Dirty Words monologue. And yet even those officials said this has gone too far. If I can quote just one of many quotable lines, uh, they uh, decried what the FCC is doing as a radical censorship crusade that will chill all but the blandest program fear. So I will simply say uh, stay tuned, and Roger, I hope I've earned another uh, invitation back uh, because these cases, obviously, I'm going to have more to say about them in the future. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Nadine. We're now going to turn to campaign finance and uh, hear from Jim Bopp to paraphrase Spinoza if... Um, Jim Bob did not exist, we'd have to invent him. He is the most uh, knowledgeable, um, or put it this way, there is no one in the country more knowledgeable than Jim Bob about um, uh, these issues of campaign finance. He litigates cases all over the country, winning most of them. He is just an invaluable resource in this area of the law. He's general counsel at the James Madison Center for Free Speech, has a national constitutional law practice with the law firm of Bopp, Colson, and Bostrom. He practices in areas that include the uh, not only campaign finance, but First Amendment law, constitutional law, election law, civil litigation, appellate practice, uh, and U.S. Supreme Court practice. He is a graduate of um, the Indiana University and the University of Florida Law School. Um, he um, is um, someone to be reckoned with in this area, and we're very fortunate to have him with us today to talk about uh, the um, Citizens United and other related cases. Please welcome Jim Bopp. 
Th thank you very much, Roger, for your very kind words. Um, we have a definite division of responsibility here on this panel. Uh, Nadine's uh, job is to talk about sex. Uh, I am to talk about something much more mundane, which is a movie about Hillary Clinton, and there's nothing about Hillary that makes one think of sex. <laughs> and that is, of course, Citizens United uh, versus the Federal Election Commission. Uh, I do have some um, uh, uh, significant contact with this case. Uh, uh, I uh, represented 26 plaintiffs in McConnell versus FEC that upheld the provision at issue in Citizens United on its face, that is the electioneering communication blackout period where corporations and labor unions are prohibited from mentioning the names of a candidate in a broadcast ad within 30 days of a primary and 60 days of a general election. I also argued the two cases on behalf of Wisconsin Right to Life in the uh, U.S. Supreme Court resulting in a uh, narrowing of that electionary communication to only those ads uh, where there is no other reasonable interpretation than the ads call uh, appeal uh, for an appeal to vote for or against a candidate. And in the district court and through the acceptance of the case by the United States Supreme Court, I represent Citizens United. Now, um, I see my job as uh, saying, uh, how, how did uh, we get uh, here from there? Well, from there uh, is really takes you back to the beginning, and, and there uh, is the adoption of the First Amendment to the Constitution, which provides that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, it seems to me that the, uh, the Congress and many state legislators, certainly incumbent politicians and even the United States Supreme Court has had some trouble with understanding what the meaning of the word no is. Uh, somewhat similar to my three daughters, uh, as they were growing up, uh, they thought the word no meant okay, at least this time. Uh, well, uh, the, the this time in campaign finance uh, uh, decisions of the court has been the recognition of two compelling interests uh, that have justified now massive regulation of campaign finance speech, and that is uh, quid pro quo corruption and its appearance uh, that has justified contribution limits uh, accepted in Buckley, Shrink, uh, and cut back somewhat in Randall versus Sorrell, uh, as well as McConnell, and the corporate distortion interest uh, first articulated in Austin and uh, relied upon in McConnell to uphold the electioneering communication prohibition here. Now, the result of the recognition of those two interests in terms of federal campaign finance law is that we now have 244 pages in the federal statutes of, uh, of the FICA, the Federal Election Campaign Act, uh, and 568 pages of regulations adopted by the Federal Election Com Commission published in the Federal Register. They've also promulgated 13, uh, there has also been 13 major court cases interpreting uh, the provisions of the FICA and its regulations, as well as 366 other cases doing the same, and 17 are currently pending. Now, if after consulting all of that, you still don't know what federal election campaign law means, 
you could always read the 1,278 pages of the Federal Register where the FEC has helpfully uh, provided explanations and justifications for uh, the uh, 568 pages of regulations they've adopted, or you could look at the 10 policy statements or one interpretive rule, or the 1,771 advisory opinions promulgated since 1975. And if you're still not satisfied that you really know what the FEC is doing, you could also, of course, consult the over 6,000 matters under review, that is, uh, complaints that have been issued and resolved by the Federal Election Commission uh, since uh, 1975. Well, I would submit that this is the antithesis of uh, Congress shall make uh, no law. Uh, well, the next step is the Buckley versus Vallejo in 1976 that upheld the, uh, the uh, post-Watergate amendments to the Federal Election Campaign Act, and that court adopted a, a two-part analysis of, uh, in terms of considering the constitutionality of those provisions. Uh, the first part of the analysis is to uh, make sure that the each of the provisions are unambiguously related to, the, to a campaign for uh, federal office. Uh, and so they have cut back the uh, scope of many of the uh, many of federal uh, campaign finance laws uh, to ensure that uh, they do not exceed Congress's authority uh, to only regulate campaign finance as opposed to everything that happens in our democracy uh, and, uh, and uh, conforms with the First Amendment. And that is what has given rise to the, uh, uh, the uh, express advocacy test, the major purpose test, uh, and, uh, and the uh, functional equivalent of express advocacy and ultimately the uh, appeal to vote test uh, in Wisconsin right to life. The second step uh, is then to apply the appropriate level of constitutional scrutiny to see if the now narrowly cut narrowed and cut back uh, campaign finance law still survives constitutional scrutiny, and Buckley found many of them did not. Now, of course, the next step along the way is the passage of McCain-Feingold in uh, 2002, uh, where Congress, of course, expressed much of its dis displeasure uh, with Beckley versus Vallejo and, uh, and dealt with the express advocacy test where all sorts of provisions uh, in the Federal uh, Election Campaign Act uh, were cut back to only communications which expressly advocate the election and defeat of a candidate by adopting the electionary communication prohibition, this blackout period, mentioning the names of candidates in broadcast ads prior to an election. The next stop would be in 2003 in McConnell versus FEC, uh, which was litigated under Buckley. It was not a challenge to the unambiguously campaign-related scheme. It was not a challenge uh, to the tests that have emanated from it, uh, but, uh, but uh, sought to uh, uh, prove, which they ultimately were successful in proving, uh, to the satisfaction of at least five members of the court, uh, that uh, electionary communications were the, quote, functional equivalent of express advocacy, did the same thing uh, as advocating the election or defeat of a candidate. And therefore, the Supreme Court upheld that provision on its face. And then that takes us to the 2007 decision of Wisconsin Right to Life, uh, where uh, uh, it was an as-applied challenge 
uh, to the election and communication prohibition, where Wisconsin Right to Life argued that uh, it wanted to engage in grassroots lobbying about an upcoming vote in Congress, and that certainly this has nothing to do with, with, ca uh, with campaigns or campaign finance or the authority of Congress uh, uh, to so regulate, and that, in fact, is protected by its own provision of the First Amendment, the right to petition the government. Uh, the court agreed uh, uh, and actually gave Wisconsin much more than they asked for, uh, which was the adoption of the appeal-to-vote test, uh, which defined not an exception uh, to the general prohibition, but, uh, but defined the scope of the prohibition itself to only uh, communications that, that contain the appeal-to-vote. Now, that was in a two-justice uh, opinion uh, written by Chief Justice Roberts, where the other concurring justices, the other three, uh, wanted to reverse McConnell right then and there. Now, once Wisconsin was decided, of course, uh, there's a problem. The problem is that even though the prohibition had now been cut back, uh, we still had the disclosure requirements, that is, the filing of a report, if you did, in lecturing communication, the requirement of putting a disclaimer on the ad. The disclaimer is 4.2 seconds. If you want to do a 10-second ad, it pretty well wipes it out. And the disclosure reports uh, require uh, your uh, contributors to be reported. And as people who represent advocacy groups know, understand, and so do incumbent politicians understand, that uh, it, is a it is almost as chilling uh, to disclose your donors as it is to, to violate a prohibition. And, uh, and so you have then the question, if you wanted to do an electioneering communication that passed Robert's test, uh, you'd still have regulations that you had to comply with. And so this was the very problem Citizens United faced. They wanted to do a 90-minute documentary called Hillary the Movie. If they ran the documentary on, uh, on radio or television, it mentioned the name of a candidate, would be a prohibited electioneering communication uh, uh, if it did not pass the appeal-to-vote test. And the ads, uh, one 30-second to 10-second ads that, uh, uh, that were going to be used to promote the movie uh, and, and urge people to buy it, uh, of course, uh, Hillary the movie, it mentions the name of a candidate, and these ads uh, were to be run during the 2008 election cycle when uh, Hillary was a candidate. Uh, the way the case, uh, we originally framed the case, we was focused really more on the disclosure requirements, the report and the disclaimers, and the argument was that, well, you, you know, the unambiguously campaign-related requirement means that if you can't prohibit it, you can't re regulate it. I mean, if it's not uh, directly related to a, a cam campaign because, uh, uh, and you can't prohibit it, it also means it's, it's not directly related to a campaign, and you can't require reports and disclaimers. But furthermore, as to the movie, the argument was there was no appeal to vote because there was no call to action in the movie. There was no invitation to any person to go vote uh, against Hillary. Now, furthermore, uh, the argument was made that uh, this whole scheme has become unworkable and, uh, of course, a precedent is always at stake, is always subject to reconsideration and reversal if the Supreme Court is asked to apply it to someone. And, uh, and the one workability of the appeal-to-vote test and the whole electionary communication scheme and protecting the First Amendment uh, rights of people uh, would argue for its reversal. Well, the district court... Uh, 
the FEC and the district court uh, agreed that the ads were not prohibited, uh, but, uh, uh, but argued that the reports and disclaimers still applied, and the district court agreed. As to the movie, the FEC and the district court uh, agreed that uh, the movie could be prohibited uh, from broadcast. Uh, the case was then uh, appealed and accepted by the United States Supreme Court. Uh, Ted Olson took over representation at that point, and, and as you, uh, is not unusual, uh, I mean, after all, uh, law is art, and when you have another artist come into the, uh, onto the scene, they seem, teams tend to have their own ideas. And uh, uh, he really didn't, uh, in his uh, principal briefing, argue the unambiguously campaign related argument. We, we did, uh, filing two amicus briefs, uh, uh, but, the, uh, uh, but, uh, but argued uh, for a narrower ruling than we were arguing by emphasizing that the movie was, was sought to be pub, uh, uh, broadcast on video on demand, and there, of course, people have to go buy it uh, in order to see it, uh, giving rise to uh, uh, other interests that might justify uh, uh, the, uh, not prohibiting it. And furthermore, that uh, Citizens United, is, 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 even though it doesn't qualify, it's kind of like an MCFL, not-for-profit, that, that maybe uh, they, 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 we ought to expand that a little bit and, and, uh, and allow them to do, uh, to do the movie. Uh, so uh, 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 now they also went broader. Uh, they expressly asked for the overruling of Austin and McConnell, even though without much uh, explanation or justification for that for that position. Now, once you got to oral argument, of course, the the thing that happened is is what often happens, like when a when a deep dark family secret that all members of the family know is said publicly in front of God and everybody, and that is that the Federal Election Commission believed that they could ban books if they were published by a corporation. Now. This uh, secret is not a secret for those to those of the, the practice for the Federal Election Commission. It's been their position for decades that they can prohibit any communication that expressly advocates the election or defeat of a candidate done by a corporation or labor union, no matter how small that little reference of express advocacy might be and how big the book uh, might be. And uh, that's been their consistent and long-held uh, position. But to speak it publicly and actually hear it and think about it for a second or two was shocking uh, to many in the uh, audience of the Supreme Court and even perhaps to a few justices. Uh, the result was uh, a request for a rehearing, uh, the, uh, an ordering of the rehearing by the Supreme Court. Uh, and the question was, for the proper disposition of the case, should the court overrule Austin or the part of McConnell that facially upheld the corporate prohibition on electioneering communications? Well, the, you know, th this request for rehearing, I think, uh, solves some of the procedural problems that might otherwise exist in the case. Uh, first, that, that we, we did not ask for overruling of Austin or McConnell below in the district court. Secondly, uh, uh, Ted Olson seemed to waive in, in two responses uh, to questions by the justices, both his challenge to Austin and, and to McConnell during, during oral argument. So I think any of the questions that might otherwise have been raised about whether or not this is a suitable case for overturning Austin or McConnell has now been, been, been resolved. Uh, and my opinion on the question 
of whether or not it is a, a proper disposition requires overruling a McConnell is twofold. One, and, and we have told this to the court, uh, I have, uh, on behalf of eight former FEC commissioners. Uh, Hans is, is one and is present. Brad is one uh, who is present. Uh, and that is uh, twofold. One, that it's not necessary in order to, for Citizens United to win. They, they could win on other grounds, uh, and some of those are quite substantial grounds and important grounds. Uh, but that the court should overrule McConnell and, uh, and Austin because the, uh, this whole uh, area, and particularly the, court, the uh, Supreme Court's uh, holding in Wisconsin right to life, has simply pr proven to be unworkable uh, because of the recalcitrance of the Federal Election Commission, its unwillingness to, uh, to, be, f to be faithful and, and, and to, in good faith, uh, apply, that, uh, apply that principle. Uh, so, uh, uh, going to the uh, supplemental briefs that are then filed, uh, Citizens United said similarly that it's not necessary, but that it should, and then they make, uh, I think, the quite uh, pertinent point, an important, very important point, uh, that uh, in order for Citizens United to get meaningful relief, these two uh, cases should be overruled, and that's the simple fact that without the ruling, overruling of Austin and McConnell, Citizens United will continue to be mired in this muck. And this muck is this extremely complicated, uh, multifaceted test that invite litigation at every step and with respect to which the Federal Election Commission is eager to engage in litigation at every step. Uh, that, that means that uh, you never get to do in a timely way uh, your communications. Because even if you have the guts to go to court, even if you have the resources to go to court, uh, you're not going to get timely relief. And, and the truth uh, of it is, is that that has been true. Whether you ask for an advisory opinion, as the National Right to Life Committee did on September the 28th, getting the opinion uh, the middle of November, uh, about two ads that they wanted to run before the election, or you file a suit in uh, district courts, as uh, two organizations have, uh, 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 the Committee for uh, Truth in Politics and the Real Truth About Obama, is you cannot get preliminary injunctions, so you don't get to run your speech, even though you ultimately win. And, of course, that's what happened to Wisconsin Right to Life. Uh, or if you file suit, as Citizens United did, and, and it took the FEC literally 26 days to figure out whether or not the 32nd ad uh, passed the appeal to vote or flunked the appeal to vote test. It seems like they had to spend a whole day examining each word uh, in the advertisement. Uh, you just cannot get uh, meaningful uh, relief. Uh, so uh, that uh, then brings us, and, and then, the, then you have the FEC briefing, and what is uh, notable about the FEC briefing uh, is how they are so willing uh, to change positions. Uh, and that uh, they're willing to change positions whether they are old ones or new ones that they have just uh, made. Uh, for instance, uh, regarding Austin, uh, Austin was based on the idea of uh, corruption, uh, corporate cr uh, distortion of the electoral process by their participation in the process. Uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts, in oral argument, was able to uh, get the FEC to uh, explain 
that uh, they have uh, repudiated that interest that supports Austin. And, in fact, they are making two new arguments. Uh, one of them is that corporations pose some special threat of quid pro quo corruption when they might make contributions or expenditures regarding uh, candidates. And, furthermore, we need uh, this prohibition uh, in order to uh, protect dissident shareholders. Uh, two, uh, thank you, two uh, interests that the Supreme Court has already rejected uh, in uh, prior cases, or their willingness to uh, reject their own briefing that they did, did earlier in the Supreme Court in this very case, where the, Supreme, where, where the FEC argued correctly and in conformance with their regulations that the Citizens United is not an MCFL-qualified organization, and now they're, they're telling the Supreme Court, well, you know, just go ahead and find that they are, you know. Uh, just expand it a little bit and just say, well, they can, they can have a few uh, corporate contributions and, and it would still uh, be okay. Well, uh, uh, during the argument, uh, the notable things that happened, uh, of course, everyone wants a prediction. I'll give you one. Uh, what is the Supreme Court going to do? What I look for uh, is uh, on those two justices that in Wisconsin right to life, ruled correctly, but not to overturn Austin, which is Roberts and Alito, I look for any reluctance for them to reach the ultimate constitutional issue in Austin. And there was not any hint of reluctance on either of their parts in their questioning and comments in the court. I also look for either of them uh, to whether or not they are arguing for a narrower ruling uh, than uh, uh, then uh, reaching Austin and McConnell, and there was not no, any hint of any argument for a narrower reeling, ruling. Uh, those two who are reluctant to reach the ultimate issue in Wisconsin right to life has ex have expressed, so far anyway, no reluctance uh, to reach that result now. Uh, so the way I read that then is, is that certainly uh, at argument time, uh, they had a tentative uh, decision to reach the ultimate issue, and if they do, I believe that they will overrule both McConnell and Austin. Uh, just a couple of other quick notable uh, things in the oral argument. The FEC did concede, as they had in the first argument, and it has, has always been their position, that they believe that portions of the Federal Election Campaign Act can be used uh, to ban books. Uh, they uh, uh, Secondly is... Uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts was able to successfully uh, get the FEC to concede an oral argument that they have abandoned the Austin rationale, and they're now arguing for these two alternate, uh, also rejected rationales that they want the court now to accept, shareholder interest and quid pro quo corruption. Uh, that has the effect of abandoning stereotypes. In other words, uh, if you have a new rationale for, uh, if you repudiate the rationale for a case, you're repudiating the case. Uh, you know, you can't have a new rationale and say that it that it that it's an old case that binds you. Uh, so I th I see the uh, stereotypes argument now completely out the window, and it's only a matter of uh, the court making dec decisions de novo uh, on these various points. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' uh, uh, rather startling but quite significant statement when he said, we don't put our First Amendment rights in the hands of FEC bureaucrats. Now, uh, he said so, and you don't see that in the transcript, with some amount of force and emotion. 
And uh, I think it is clear that the FEC's recalcitrance uh, to accept uh, his compromise, his narrow ruling in Wisconsin right to life, not reaching the ultimate issue, avoiding the constitutional issues, as is important to do, uh, he's already done that in Wisconsin right to life. And the, re and the uh, response from the Federal Election Commission uh, has been defiance of his, uh, of his ruling. I just don't think you can expect him to do it twice. I mean, the first time, you know, shame on you. The second time, it would be shame on me uh, if I would buy your, uh, your invitation to do a narrower ruling that you're just going to defy all over again. Uh, I think this has consequences for the future as well. Uh, Justice Breyer, I think, made a uh, facts, uh, uh, expressed a facts concern about uh, uh, about, well, how about poor, poor political parties? Uh, if you unleash uh, corporations and labor unions, what are we going to do with uh, political parties that, uh, you know, are still subject to Bikra's prohibition on using soft money? Uh, the natural, uh, the obvious uh, answer to that, it seems to me, uh, is the fact that the uh, uh, Republican uh, Party, the RNC, has already filed suit against the Federal Election Commission to set aside a good portion of the soft money regulations. It has now been argued on the merits. We will have a decision within a few weeks, which means that that case will be to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the, and the answer then to Justice Breyer's question is, well, then the RNC should win that case too. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Now to wrap it up, we're going to hear from Brad Smith, uh, who has himself no little experience on the Federal Election Commission. In fact, he served as, uh, on the commission since uh, 2000 uh, when he was appointed to the Republican seat by President Clinton, and then he served as uh, vice chairman of the commission in 2003 and as chairman in 2004. Uh, Brad holds the uh, Josiah H. Blackmore II and Shirley M. Nault Distinguished Professorship at Capital University Law School in Columbus, Ohio. He's a graduate of um, Kalamazoo College and of the Harvard Law School. Um, he uh, co-founded in, in, in 2005, uh, 19, uh, 2005 uh, with Steve Horsting, who's with us today, uh, the Center for Competitive Politics, and he served as its chairman since, since its inception. He, too, is a prolific writer and appears often in the media. Please welcome Brad Smith. Thank you very much, Roger, for that uh, nice introduction. I'm glad I didn't start that organization in 1925. Mm. Uh, thank you, Jim, for a great job on the fin campaign finance. It's about time I didn't have to talk about campaign finance. I appreciate that. I do notice that when Hans and I were on the election commission, no Supreme Court justice ever expressed a fear of trusting the, the FEC with our First Amendment rights. Uh, but maybe they should have. It's good to see that kind of change. Uh, I also in particular want to thank my uh, co-author on this piece, Steve Hursting, who's out here in the audience uh, and was a co-founder of the Center for Competitive Politics. Steve did most of the work. I get to stand up and get most of the glory. Uh, but, you know, well, far be it from me to question Roger and Elia's judgment, and thanks to you two as well. Now, I'm here today to talk about Caperton versus uh, Massey Cole, an interesting case. 
It stems out of a great case of corporate uh, uh, intrigue. It would read like a plot from Dallas. But basically the bottom line is that uh, in 2004, Harmon Cole won a $50 million jury verdict against Massey Cole Company of uh, West Virginia. And the CEO of Massey Cole is a fellow named Don Blankenship. Now, to give you a feel for the facts, these are taken from an ABA Journal article here in the February edition of the ABA Journal. It notes, these are all quotes, Blankenship raised some $3 million on behalf of an unknown Charleston lawyer named Brent D. Benjamin, who wanted a seat on, a West, on the West Virginia Supreme Court. I should add here, this occurred after the jury verdict. Uh, post-trial motions were pending, and meanwhile, there was an election for the West Virginia Supreme Court. Continuing with quotes on the facts here. Concern that seven figures in campaign backing could influence the case's outcome, Caperton's lawyers asked Benjamin to disqualify himself. I quote again, further in the article, the justices will ponder, that is the Supreme Court, will ponder whether Benjamin violated Caperton's 14th Amendment due process right by accepting millions in campaign support from, Benj from Blankenship, then deciding the case anyway. Uh, here's a quote from the article, which is itself quoting the am amicus brief filed by the ABA. The magnitude and timing of the campaign contributions here gave Justice Benjamin in appearance, if not in fact, a personal interest in the outcome of the case. Continuing, Blankenship also contributed $515,000 in direct support to Benjamin's campaign committee. And, quote, other donors chipped in the remaining $330,000 that the committee raised. And it goes on to say, finally, though Massey CEO Blankenship had shown little prior interest in political campaigns for other statewide offices, he didn't hesitate in channeling millions of dollars to support candidate Benjamin. Now, every one of these statements I have just read is either serious mis seriously misleading or outright false. And that's what I mean when I say, when we begin our article by noting that bad facts make for bad law. Bad facts are bad enough, uh, but when the facts aren't even accurate, when they're bad, bad facts, it can be truly dangerous. Benjamin, for example, was not an unknown attorney. He had been the state treasurer of the West Virginia Republican Party for a couple of years. He was 19 years an attorney at one of the largest law firms in the state. He had been frequently mentioned as a possible candidate. He was supported by the Republican Party during the Republican primary. Uh, the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce had rated the race as one of the ten most important Supreme Court races of the year, making sure that it would be a high-profile race and that any nominee uh, would be well-funded. Um, and Benjamin was endorsed by every newspaper in the state except for one. Uh, meanwhile, he, uh, at McGraw, who had spent nearly four decades in West Virginia politics, faced a Democratic primary challenge, which he won with only 56 percent of the vote. Going down some of the specifics, Blankenship did not raise money on behalf of Justice uh, Benjamin or then candidate Benjamin. Blankenship did not, or I'm sorry, Benjamin did not accept, the article's words, campaign support from Blankenship and in fact could not have, quote, rejected uh, Blankenship's support even had he wanted to. Why? Because Blankenship's spending on the race consisted of independent spending done without conferral with Benjamin, without gaining any approval from Benjamin, without any suggestion or request from Benjamin. Um, 
had Benjamin, Benjamin had no power to reject this funding. Blankenship did not contribute $515,000 in direct support to Benjamin's campaign. He contributed the legal maximum under West Virginia law of $1,000. Or a quick math, let's see, $515,000, $1,000, about one five hundred and fifteenth of what the article said he contributed. Um, other donors contributed over $840,000 to Benjamin's campaign, not just $330,000. Uh, I won't even go into how it is. I have my theories on how it is that the ABA journal, which you'd think might be a little more accurate than the general press, came to so many inaccuracies, and I will, for the sake of brevity, just ask you to trust me that all of those statements are inaccurate as I have represented to you. In fact, when we look at this case, we see that J Judge Brent Benjamin's behavior was, in fact, impeccable. He had no pecuniary interest in the case. There's no evidence that prior to the case he had ever met uh, Blankenship. He made no public comments at any time exhibiting any bias on the case. Since being on the West Virginia Supreme Court, Benjamin had voted against Massey at least five other times against Massey Cole, the company of which Blankenship was the CEO. Now, uh, the petitioners say the petitioners in the case, that is Harmon Coal Company or Caperton, said that it was important because Benjamin was the deciding vote in this case on this $50 million verdict. Whereas in the other five cases, one in which Blankens or Benjamin, I keep, can't have trouble getting all these B names straight, Benjamin voted to uphold a $243 million judgment against, against Massey Coal, almost five times the judgment at issue in Caperton. Uh, but they say, well, in Caperton, Benjamin was the deciding vote. But, of course, when you're deciding whether or not to recuse yourself, you don't know that you're going to be the deciding vote. So that would be a difficult situation. Um, the brief of, uh, that was filed by Caperton in the court, in fact, concluded this sentence, which I found rather humorous. A judge tainted by the probability of bias cannot constitutionally immunize his actions by the simple expedience of failing to vote in the manner that bias suggests. Think about that for a minute. You can't get around the appearance of bias by refusing to act in a biased fashion. That's what their statement was. That was their argument. They admitted essentially that Benjamin, in fact, was really above reproach in his own behavior. Now, that doesn't make this an easy case. It's easy to see why some people were uncomfortable with the case. In West Virginia, there's no intermediate court of appeals, so trial court decisions go directly to the West Virginia Court of Appeals. Uh, after losing that $50 million judgment, Blankenship, on behalf of Massey CEO, or Massey uh, Cole, immediately announced that they were going to appeal the verdict. They also filed a number of post-trial motions. So actually, at the time of the election, the case was not yet on appeal. There were still post-trial motions pending, and conceivably, it still could have been won by Massey Cole in the trial court. But nonetheless, Blankenship did spend over $3 million of his own money in independent expenditures trying to elect, uh, or to defeat Judge McGraw, we should say, to elect uh, Judge Benjamin. And you can see why some people become uncomfortable with this. Uh, judging is not quite like legislating, and, and uh, to know that that company is now appearing before you does make some people feel uneasy. But again, I want to emphasize 
Historically, the standard for due process has been that a judge has to have an actual pecuniary interest in the matter or knowledge of the parties involved or have otherwise behaved improperly. And none of those things is true. So Judge Benjamin was being asked to recuse himself on something that he did not do and had absolutely no control over and no control over how anyone else might perceive that. Now, how do we come up with a due process test out of facts like these? Oh, it's also worth noting that, that Blankenship actually was not even a party to the case. Granted, he was the CEO to a party to the case. But it's an interesting comment that if you just looked at the case caption, you wouldn't even necessarily know that, that he was involved at all. Well, how do you come up with a recusal standard for this? Well, uh, Harmon Cole or Caperton... Uh, who's this? Caperton was the president of Harmon Cole, who, by the way, uh, uh, made independent expenditures on his own behalf, on his part, on behalf of uh, Justice McGraw. Um, suggested Caperton's brief suggested five factors should be considered. The ABA's amicus brief suggested the court should consider four factors. The Conference of Chief Justices suggested that the court should consider seven factors. Public Citizen, in an amicus brief, suggested the court really needed to consider 10 different factors. And let's look at some of the factors that were suggested. The ABA suggested that we should look at, quote, the size and importance of the contribution. As the amount increases, so does the perception of influence and the risk that the judge's impartiality might be reasonably questioned. A contribution that is unusually large in absolute or relative terms or that results in an appearance of dependence on the contributor should weigh heavily in favor of recusal. However, an appropriate dollar limit may depend on the cost of judicial campaigns in a jurisdiction, recognizing that they vary with the size of the electorate and with whether the election is contested, has a large field or small field, or is long in duration, and whether the public and alternative funding sources are available. The Council of Chief Justices was much more clear. They suggested the amount of support given by the interested party must be considered. No set amount can be labeled as beyond the pale for all cases. Circumstances always matter. For example, the size of the jurisdiction in, and the electorate to be persuaded is crucial. What is exorbitant in a small city like Dallas, Oregon, may be unremarkable in a metropolitan jurisdiction like Dallas, Texas. Standard practice in a jurisdiction is also a vital component. An amount of support that is outrageous in a state like Minnesota, which has for decades had only low-key judicial contest, might be routine in a smaller state such as Alabama, where multi-million dollar races are quite frequent. Even within a single state, from year to year, from court to court, or from county to county, an amount that might possibly offend due process in one instance will not in another. <laughs> um, I could go on, but I won't in the interest of time. I've got a couple other examples here that I'm not going to read. In short, let me suggest that the parties, uh, that the Caperton and the uh, Amici supporting Caperton really provided no workable standard whatsoever for recusal. But in the end, in a 5-4 decision uh, written by Justice Kennedy, the court did hold uh, one of these all circumstances considered test that, in fact, uh, Caperton's due process rights were violated in this particular case. Now, um, how much will this really matter? Well, it matters a lot if it sparks lots and lots of what we will probably soon call Caperton motions, that is, motions to disqualify uh, judges because they had participated in the campaign in some way. 
And Chief Justice Roberts, in a dissent, kind of diced up the majority opinion. Uh, the dissent reads to me, I don't know this, but it, it reads almost like it was written as a memo to Kennedy in the office saying, have you thought about these things? And when they didn't persuade Kennedy, he just put it in an opinion. Because he actually has about 30 numbered questions that just goes down and raises various questions this raises, like how long has to elapse between the time that the case is heard and the time of the last campaign? Does it matter if the judge is seeking re-election? Does the term between elections matter? Benjamin was elected to a 10-year term. Uh, he asked, is there a reciprocity deal here? In other words, if Blankenship's goal was to get rid of McGraw on the West Virginia Supreme Court so that McGraw did not hear Massey Cole's appeal, does he achieve that no matter what? Because by spending $3 million, either Benjamin has a great debt of gratitude or McGraw has a great deal of anger and vengeance on his mind. The argument could certainly be made, I think, that McGraw would be equally incapable of hearing the case and thus that, that Blankenship had succeeded uh, no matter how the actual race turned out. Uh, we raise a number of other questions, or Roberts raises a number of other questions in this dissent. Perhaps recognizing that we could have a flood of motions, and by the way, we should also consider, as I mentioned, Caperton himself contributed $10,000 in independent spending. He didn't contribute. He made independent spending of $10,000 in support of McGraw. Well, is that enough to, to mandate recusal? Of course, it's nowhere near $3 million, but on the other hand, I think to your average American, $10,000 sounds like quite a bit of money. It's more than, than most people can afford to do. Um, Kennedy, in writing the opinion, seems to recognize this and seems to want to cabin the opinion off. And if he's successful, it may not matter all that much. His opinion for the majority mentions that the facts are extreme, in quotes, eight times. Five times he mentions that the facts are extraordinary. At one point he even says, uh, parties have cited no other instance uh, of judicial campaign contributions that present a potential for bias comparable to this case. In other words, this is sort of a Bush v. Gore case. This is a one ticket only, you know, get on this train or you've missed it. This train's not running again. And we'll have to see if that works. The other factor that might determine what will happen will be how lower courts handle the first few Caperton appeals they get. If they treat the opinion as one that's fairly expansive, that will encourage more Caperton appeals. If they do not, uh, I think the appeals will drop off. And it was pointed out by the dissenters in the case that if the big concern is judicial integrity, encouraging Caperton appeals will in and of itself lead to a decline in the perceptions of judicial integrity because people will be treated to a constant series of motions from folks accusing judges of bias, to which the judges will have to do one of two things either admit that they are biased or argue that they are not biased. And you know how that question works in the press and in modern politics. Merely arguing that you're not biased makes everybody wonder if you're biased. That's the way the game is played these days. Now, despite all that, for us, the interesting angle of this case, because like my friend Jim here, I'm a campaign finance geek, was the campaign finance angle. This case is not on its face obviously a campaign finance case. That is, nothing limits Blankenship's ability to spend money, right? It merely says that if he spends a lot of money and his candidate then takes office in these judicial elections, that the, that judge will have to recuse himself uh, from the race. But uh, it is worth noting that every major campaign finance reform group lined up on the side 
of Caperton in this case. And we believe that what they hoped was that the idea of a perception of gratitude, which was the word our friend Ted Olson, I guess Ted should be here today, used in arguing in behalf of Caperton, would be enough to establish a need for limits. In other words, to some extent, this case was seen as the Trojan horse with which to attack the notion that independent spending in political campaigns cannot be regulated in the same way that contributions can be regulated. Uh, and as Jim has noted, uh, the Supreme Court allows greater regulation of contributions than it does of independent spending. But if independent expenditures, in fact, create the opportunity for bias then it may be that independent expenditures in other political races can be regulated. Um, historically, again, bias in the judicial context of recusal has meant personal gain to the judge with that third category of the judge demonstrating bias by his own comments. But otherwise, it has meant personal gain to the judge. But in campaign finance, it is already illegal to use your campaign contributions for personal benefit. You can't use your campaign contributions to go out and buy yourself a suit to wear or, or take a vacation or do a variety of things like that. So if, if corruption in the campaign finance scenario involves less nefarious conduct than bias in the question of judicial recusals, and if independent expenditures are enough to create that perception of bias, then one might logically say, let's see, A is greater than B, B is greater than C, therefore A must be greater than C. All right? And I think that that, indeed, was the hope, that there would be some strong language suggesting that independent expenditures, in fact, created bias in the uh, realm of campaigns, thus opening the door for a further attack on independent expenditures, which has long been sort of the uh, safety valve that has allowed the political system to function despite uh, relatively strict contributions uh, or relatively strict limitations on contributions. Um, we will have to see. And the key clue to that may actually come in Citizens United. Uh, Justice Kennedy is often described, you know, he's always called the swing vote, and a lot of people don't follow this stuff quickly, they'll, closely, they'll, they'll ask, uh, is, is he the swing vote, you know, is, is he the vote on, on Citizens United? And I say no, on campaign finance, he has always been a very, very strong vote for free speech. Uh, if he, in fact, sticks to his guns, to his dissent in Austin, and now in Citizens United votes to overrule Austin, I think it will mean that Caperton will have a very short life. But if something else occurs, and if lower courts again interpret this decision quite broadly, we could end up not only with a lot of Caperton motions that I think will be an assault on due process of law, but I think we're also likely to have set the seeds for a future opinion which would undercut independent expenditures in the realm of campaign finance. Thank you. Well, as a mark of their um, love of free speech, we're now very short on time for questions. Um, still, we've got a couple of minutes for questions from the audience. Please uh, raise your hand, uh, identify who your question is directed to, identify yourself, and any um, affiliation you may have. Right down here, Hans, Hans Vakovsky. No, no, right, right down here. Hey, I'm Hans von Spakovsky, Heritage Foundation. Um, 
Is there any way to to reconcile the decision that Kennedy wrote in the Caperton case with his uh, blistering dissent in the Austin case, where he's criticizing, you know, limitations on independent political expenditures? Because in that opinion in Caperton, he he's he, in the opinion, confuses contributions with expenditures throughout the opinion. And I, I don't see how you can reconcile them. Either that or is he showing the early signs of schizophrenia? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> okay, three ways to reconcile Different clerks. I think there are two ways to reconcile One is to say that somehow judicial elections are different. Although it's interesting because Kennedy has long been a strong believer, wrote a, wrote a very strong opinion in Minnesota Republican Party versus White. I'm trying to remember, Jim, do you remember who was the lawyer who litigated that case? It was, it was a guy from Indiana, southern Indiana. Uh, and uh, uh, he had, uh, up, had held there that you couldn't have judicial elections but then say somehow First Amendment rights didn't apply. So he was very strong there. So he, but he, you still can make some distinction on the idea of judicial elections. The other thing is you could point out, again, that it doesn't actually limit Blankenship. He can do the independent expenditures. It's just that he loses some of the personal advantage from them of actually getting a judge that he might prefer on the Supreme Court. The third point you raise is one, I, I have no idea about the answer to this, but I've speculated some with Steve Hursting, my co-author, and with others, whether Kennedy was intentionally going along with the prevailing description in the press of these things as contributions. Maybe it's an intentional way to, to be able to rule for Caperton in a case that he really didn't like the looks of without undercutting his own independent expenditure. I, because he does keep saying contributions, 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 not expenditures. And there, you, know, you do think he would have known that difference. Let me add two things to that. The, the, the first is, uh, in the Citizens United, our, a re-argument. I mean, we weren't two minutes into the re-argument, and Kennedy uh, got, I mean, Kennedy asked a question, which he prefaces by, by saying, yes, I do know the difference between, that there is a difference between independent expenditures and contributions. So I almost think that he was responding to some of the public commentary about Caperton about whether or not he had jettisoned that. And, in fact, he, in, in, he reaffirmed his understanding. of the, the other thing about Kennedy, and I, I agreed with what Brad said, is the way in which he's a swing justice is it seems to me that he tries very hard to be consistent within discrete areas of the law so that if he's made a decision within that discrete area of the law, you, you can expect him to be consistent. Uh, if it's an area that he, a discrete area of the law that he hasn't made a decision, you really don't know how he's going to approach it. And uh, so what I think we have here is he didn't view this as a campaign finance case. So my, from my standpoint, I wish he had of, but he didn't. He did not view it that way. All right? And so he felt free to you know, uh, decide how he's going to deal with it. And uh, he does have this unfortunate tendency of uh, believing that his responsibility is to decide on the merits every case the way justice would uh, dictate uh, without regard to the consequences. And, of course, the dissenters were saying, look, you know, this may be a bad, quote, bad case, but bad cases make, you know, bad law. So let's, uh, we have to be careful. And, 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 and look at it that way. Any questions on religion or sex for Nadine? <laughs> I'll, I'll deal with money and politics. Well, Eclectic. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. Uh, one. Uh, Steve. Oh, okay. One last question, and then we've got to move to the next panel. Uh, my 
name is Stephen Shoreham with the PBGC. The, the one problem that's not widely known about the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. is that there are two basic ways of numbering them. One, I think, is Roman Catholic and Lutheran. The other, Anglican and Protestant. And so we're, we're, God only knows where – I don't know where, where the Jews come out on how they number them. But So it would seem that you cannot post a Ten Commandments – sculpture or work of art without coming down on one numerology over the other. So I'm wondering if this has uh, played a role in court decisions. I I completely uh, agree with the analysis as as far as it goes, sir. But in fact, there are even more variations, as I discovered uh, in the pair of cases that the Supreme Court decided in 2005. Um, And there is a Lutheran version. There are multiple uh, Protestant versions. And um, one argument that was made before the Supreme Court was precisely the argument that you suggest. I was appalled that Justice Scalia dispensed with that in a footnote saying that he did not realize that there were these textual differences. I mean, the Jewish version starts with, um, I am the, it's it's got a specific language, I'm sorry, I'm not going to try to paraphrase it, that's not contained in the others. Uh, The Catholic version omits the ban on graven images, which appears in other versions. So for Scalia, as such an ardent textualist, to say, I'm not aware of these differences, and to brush them aside, I think is is very troubling. Well, maybe it's because he he obviously knows that the Catholic version is correct. Hmm. <laughs> well, so much for a Jesuit education. Uh, all right, we're going to have to move to our next panel. We're going straight into it, and it's the criminal law panel. So please uh, join me in, welcome, in, in a round of applause for our speakers. <laughs>